0: Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 56. The text we read today we'll be looking at in God's holy word. This is not uncommon for us to take a break from our regular exposition at the beginning of the year. It's something that uh, I have done many, many times, most every year, although not every one most every year. Um, and the intent is to remind ourselves of the means of growth, grace that God has given to His people. How do we grow? How do we grow in likeness? How do we look like Jesus? It's by the grace of God. And in His grace, He has given certain means that as we avail ourselves of them, we find ourselves growing. And the flip side is also true. If we neglect these means of growth, we may not have cause, we may say that we don't have cause to say, why? Why can't I seem to grow in my walk? <laughs> Avail yourself of the means. And last week, uh, Pastor Caleb preached to us from the book of Timothy in chapter 4, and in that sermon, he called elders, it was very, uh, very direct to me. Uh, The text is directed toward elders or pastors, and he called elders to live lives of godliness and faithfully preaching of the Word. And then he called the church to follow the elders' example, to engage, to hear the preaching of the Word, to make the preaching of God's Word on the Lord's Day the feast, the meal for the Christian. In fact, the tone of the New Testament is that spiritual growth comes through the prioritized public preaching of the Word. It's the tone of the New Testament. And every other good word engagement is even, you could say, an essential snack flowing from the primary whole family feast of exposition on Sunday. Paul the Apostle tells us that faith comes through hearing and hearing the Word of God. And the flip side of that is also equally true. Unbelief comes through disengagement, refusing, forsaking, not hearing the Word of God. So if you're saying, why is my faith so weak? I would encourage you to look at the first means of growth. Are you hearing the Word of God? Are you hearing it? Is it your diet? Is it your, your, your priority of the week? But God unites prayer to preaching for spiritual progress. Communion with Christ includes hearing from God through the Word and speaking to God through prayer. That's communion with Him. And so the sermon today is a sermon on the words twin, on prayer. And this is a very difficult topic for me to preach. How do you preach on a topic that you feel constantly as if you are falling so short in? And you probably feel that same thing every time there is a sermon on prayer. You probably think, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> We're going to hear about how bad it is, how I don't pray enough, how I don't do this. That is not my intent today. I want you to come to the end of the sermon today wanting to pray, not shamed because of lack of prayer. So, I think it's probably before we even get into this text of Scripture, it's probably a really good idea to begin this time with prayer. Uh, let's pray. Father, help us as we come to your Word. Spirit of God, please use your Word on this issue of prayer to enliven the hearts of your people. Encourage them to find joy in the house of prayer. For this is a topic that we all must hear. It is difficult at times to hear, even more difficult to follow, to obey, and yet it is something you have said is is essential to communion with you. So Lord, help us today, and help me as I seek to teach this word faithfully. In your name, amen. Even when I preach a topical sermon, I have to do it expositionally. I just can't just jump around. So I was looking, what text do I look at that we could exposit the text on prayer? And a few years ago, I was reading in Matthew chapter 21, reading about the account of Jesus, who was chasing or cleansing the cleansing the temple, chasing out the money changers. Remember, he made that whip and he he chased them out right before his crucifixion. Because these were individuals at the temple, God's house where He'd given for His people, Israel, and they were making money off of religious experience. Further, they were cheating people and extorting people. And Jesus, in chasing them out, He says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves that phrase gripped me house of prayer and i was thinking how often do we characterize the gathered worship of god's people the people of god are the temple of god right corinthians says that we are the house of god the household of god today how often do we characterize the household of god as a people of prayer people of the book people of truth people hopefully of righteousness, people who are weak and sinful, yet trusting in God. But how often do that terminology do we think that way about God's household, God's people, as the people of prayer, the house of prayer? And yet, this is a unique description by Jesus. So what I decided to do and thinking, well, I need to preach on prayer. It's my task that's been given to me. Well, that really intrigues me. So where does it say, it is written? Because Jesus said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. So I decided to look that up. And he, that den of thieves bit, that part is from Jeremiah. He takes two texts and put them together. The house of prayer part, we read it this morning. It's Isaiah 56, as I'm sure you already know. So I want to do an exposition of Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, but then we're going to focus in the application, not on the many things that we could in this really interesting text, But on that house of prayer and my goal at the end is simply to help God's people, God's Christian people to find joy in the house of prayer. So Isaiah 56, what is this all about? Isaiah itself is a very unique book. It's the most Christian book in the Old Testament. Uh, just like Hebrews is the most Jewish book in the New Testament, Isaiah is the most Christian book in the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? It has more references to the promise of the Messiah to Christ than any other Old Testament book. And so it is a treasure trove of messianic prophecies. It does it in such a unique and, I think, helpful way. It begins at the beginning of Isaiah with describing prophecies concerning the birth of the Christ. Isaiah 7, 14, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Uh, You should call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a, a child is born, unto us a son is given, and so on and so on. So it starts at the beginning with prophecies concerning the birth. You come to the middle part of Isaiah, and there's prophecies concerning Christ's life and his walk. And then you come toward the end of Isaiah, and you have prophecies, the most rich prophecies in the Old Testament, regarding his sacrificial death. But it doesn't end there. Probably the most famous prophecy in Isaiah regarding his sacrificial death is Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53 where we have the song of the suffering servant. uh, The just very blunt descriptions of a crucified Christ. And then you move on in the book of Isaiah because you see the death of Jesus Christ was not the end of the ministry of Jesus Christ nor of the prophetic promises. Because you come to the last section in Isaiah, beginning with chapter 56. 56 through 66 is the last section. And what we find in chapter 56 is the promise, not of the Messiah so much, but the Messiah's new covenant people, or the church. Following that, you work your way up to the last two chapters of Isaiah, and guess what you would expect that to be? They mirror the book of Revelation, They're about the final judgment of Christ and the eternal state in heaven with him. Isaiah 66, his return, his rule on earth as king. So Isaiah has been called by many a mini-Bible. It's got the whole story, a mini-biblical theology of Christ from the beginning all the way to the end. And so it's a very fascinating text. The setting historically in Isaiah is simply the divided kingdom about 800 B.C., um, captivities are soon to come on the historical people of Israel. First Assyria, then Babylon, several uh, hundred years later. It is important to note grammatically, if we're going to read this, especially as it relates to this text, that there is this thing in the Hebrew, which the text was written in originally, called the prophetic perfect. And it's the tense, is the perfect tense. And essentially in Hebrew, what this is, is it's a way of writing where it sounds like something that's going to happen has already happened or is happening. So it's, a, it's a, actually a way of engagement, right? Instead of saying, always saying, one day, one day, one day, the prophet writes, today, today this is happening. The Messiah is with you and among you. He's crucified. He's died. He's risen again. You're saying, but he hasn't yet, technically, No, it's the prophetic perfect. It's to get you like engaged in the present tense idea. It's also to encourage certainty. It's as if it's already happened. Much of Isaiah writes in prophetic terms, he writes in this prophetic perfect. This text is that. So we have to like imagine that though this is being written um, about 2,800 years ago, he's writing it for us today. He's writing it as if this is where we are in this text. This text is about the church in the 21st century. Okay? This text is about us. It's not just about a people from a long time ago. It's prophetically coming toward us, but it's written in the present tense or the present idea then. This last section, Alec Motyer, who's a fantastic commentator, especially on Isaiah, he said that this last section, we could, could describe it as simply this, the characteristics of a waiting people. Because that's what we are. We are awaiting people. We have seen the birth of Christ. We have seen the sacrifice of Christ. Well, we've seen that salvation of the Lord, but we're still waiting the final salvation. We're still waiting his return. We're waiting his righteousness and truth and justice to be revealed. So, what do we do while we wait? That's the idea of Isaiah 56 through 66. What do God's people do? How should they think while they wait? And so the church is present in this section. Motyer goes on to say, uh, 56.1, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and righteousness is to be revealed. 56.1 reflects precisely where the church stands today. Looking back to the once for all redemption at Calvary, Isaiah 53, and awaiting a final divine act which will rescue the church from sin, failure, and opposition, and deal finally with any and every counterforce, Isaiah 65 and 66. So it's right in the middle. It's the book of Acts and beyond. It's the church is the setting here in the prophetic sense. So what I want to do with the text today is tell you that it first divides into three sections. One and two sets the table. Three through seven uh, presents the meal. And then verse eight offers the dessert at the end. If there was, I figured I'd use that illustration today to make everybody hungry before we're done. (laughs) So we're going to set the table first in verses one and two. Thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come. And my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, that is, who keeps justice and does righteousness, and the Son of Man who lays hold of it, that is, lay hold of justice and righteousness, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. And the idea of this is simply the Lord is coming, devote yourself to worship and his will. The Lord is coming, devote yourself to him, is what he is saying. Justice, mishpat, and righteousness, tzedek. Isaiah uses this as a reference to the whole of the moral law. You could simply put that today in a way that maybe we'd understand it better. Walk in God's revealed will. Do what is right. Obey him. Live righteously. Lay hold of it. Grab a hold of it. This is not a call for righteousness to bring salvation near. He doesn't say that. Do something to gain God's salvation. He says, my salvation is near, so therefore do righteousness. The salvation he's referring to is not the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Not the justification that he brings us. But the final salvation, the return of Jesus, that brings all those things into our view. Our eyes, we see it the about-to-be-revealed righteousness of God being described here is the second advent, as we would call it, the return of Christ, His coming on the horse with judgment and truth to bring, make every wrong right, to bring justice and equity as God has called it to be. It's talking about the, se- the return of Christ. And so He's not writing to a people who are unconnected to Christ, or a people who do not already believe and hold on to the righteousness of Christ in the cross, he's talking to his people, the redeemed people. He's talking to the Christian. He's talking to the saved individual. And he's calling us to look toward the return of Jesus, look toward his righteous final salvation, and look toward that and so then today to lay hold of living righteously. He's simply put, he's not calling individuals to turn to God in salvation. He's calling individuals who have turned to God in salvation to live out that salvation, to walk in accordance with it. He's talking to the Christian to grow, to grow, to live godly those who have been pardoned by the way 55 if you need more proof 55 is where he says seek the lord while he may be found call up him while he is near let the wicked forsake his way the unrighteous man his thoughts let him return to the lord and he will have mercy on him and to our god for he will abundantly pardon that's 55 6 and 7 he's talking now 56 now that you've been pardoned how should you then live this is for the pardoned the believer This is very similar to a New Testament text, Romans chapter 10, where Paul the Apostle says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call on the Lord. And then Romans chapter 12 follows that. Therefore, beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, call upon the Lord, and when you've called upon the Lord in salvation, now present yourselves to him for devoted service and worship. That's the same concept here. Notice how he describes the pardoned man then, the believer. He calls him, in verse 2, a blessed man. That's simply the happy, one who has got joy in their life. Why are they blessed? Because they do this, because they say, yes, I'm growing, they're a growing individual, very similar to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. What is that happens? grows, flourishes bearing fruit in his season. Same idea, the blessed man, the growing Christian, the one who has laid hold of Christ because Christ has laid hold of him. And now he says, how then shall I live? I want to live by the water. I want to live in the grace of God. I want to live in God's righteousness and justice. And the son of man who lays hold of it, he says in the text, the one who is walking by faith. But that last little phrase in verse 2, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing evil, any evil, that's not in addition to one who is doing justice and righteousness. That's a particular description of this walking in righteousness and justice. He says, one, they are keeping the Sabbath and two, they are keeping their hands from evil. Now, a quick, a brief, hopefully very brief word regarding this use meaning of the Sabbath here. Um, we recognize, if you've been reading the Bible for any length of time, that the Sabbath was a pretty big deal to the Jewish people, right? It's important. Um, the way that Edward Young puts it, it says, the weekly observant of the Sabbath was tantamount to an acknowledgement that the God of Israel was indeed the creator of heaven and earth and that he had delivered his people from the bondage of Egypt and had set them apart unto himself as a peculiar nation. The Sabbath was the mark of a true Jew, the Sabbath keeping next to circumcision. So it's very significant. One of the 10 commandments, right? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What was the Sabbath in Israel? the well, Sabbath was the seventh day and it was a creation ordinance and we often use the term incorrectly so because the Bible describes it this way over and over again, it was the day of rest, right? In fact, the word Shabbat means rest, cessation from labor. But you understand, I hope, that, it, that the rest itself was not the terminal point of the Sabbath. Similar to, if I took a day off of work a rest from my labors, in order to, to, you know, spend some time with my family. And so I went and took a day off. I took my rest, and then I sat in my room by myself all day. I've not really fulfilled the point, right? I've done the necessary not, but I haven't done the positive yes. I didn't work, but I didn't do anything with that. The Sabbath in Israel is emphasized as ceasing from labor and work. There is no doubt about that. But the definitive text of the Old Testament that describes the purpose of the Sabbath is Leviticus chapter 23. 23 23.2. I want to read this to you because I think it's very important we understand then to see how it applies to us today. Leviticus 23 is not just about the seventh-day Sabbath, but actually details all of Israel's feast days and calls them all Sabbath. That's why later in this text, you may have noticed, he talks about the individual who keeps his Sabbaths, plural, because it wasn't just the one day. There was, in Israel, God had created in Israel a weekly cycle of this Sabbath, and then he created Six times a year, annual, bigger Sabbaths. And then he even created bigger Sabbaths every seven years. And then bigger Sabbaths every 49, 50 years. He created these constant cycles. And they were all Sabbaths. And the word used, look in verse 2, or sorry, 3 of Leviticus 23. He says, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. Literally in the Hebrew, a Sabbath of Sabbath. So it's just emphasizing it. And then he says this phrase, a holy convocation. You should do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Now, every time he mentions Sabbath, again, in Leviticus 23, he adds that phrase or two words, holy convocation. It's a holy convocation. What does it mean for something to be a holy convocation? This Hebrew is mikra kadosh, and this mikra actually has the root of reading. It means to read and kadosh is holy, a holy reading. Well, that's weird. But it also meant something else. Kostenberger says it's an assembly calling the community together for a religious ceremony of reading. Stop working every seventh day, he tells Israel, so that you can gather together with the people for a holy day of reading the word for a holy day of worship. Every time it's repeated, this is the definitive. So this is why, by, and I'm running, I'm jumping in my little rabbit trail, I'm sorry, but this is why they, what they missed in the New Testament when Jesus comes along and they're like, talking, don't do this and don't do this and don't do that. And Jesus is like, you miss it. You, the Sabbath, um, you were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you. What do you mean by that? He didn't just mean, because you need a break. That wasn't what he meant by that. He means it was meant for you, plural, for you all to come together. And you've turned it into a divisive element of legalistic one-upmanship. No, it was meant for the gathering. Now, that's what's fascinating about that is that God then ordained, or Christ ordained, and we see it through the New Testament that his people in the New Covenant still have then a day of gathering. It's not the seventh day. On the first day of the week, it's still a holy convocation. A day set aside for the gathering, for the reading. Gathered worship is the positive element of Sabbath keeping. The negative element is stop working. The positive element is gathered worship. That fits the context of chapter 56 if you remember what we've read so far because he's talking about all sorts of outcasts who say we can't gather. We can't do the Sabbath. We can't have it. And he's saying, yes, you can. You can gather with them. I gather all the outcasts. The whole point is the gathered worship. So when he says the one who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, he's referring to the one who walks uprightly because he's gathering in worship with God's people because he's keeping the holy convocation, the assembled worship. But it's not, that he, it's not a Saturday-only Jew, because then he says, and keeps his hand from doing evil. He's also walking in obedience and not a hypocrite, and just coming and singing the Psalms, and doing all the Torah readings, and then going on living a godless life. He's doing both. He's living on that seventh day. He's ceasing from his work, and he's coming to worship, with God's people, and then the other six days, he's living uprightly, keeping his hand from evil. So it's a very clear description of what we often describe, even in our time, of what Christianity should look like, right? You gather on Sunday to worship, and you scatter to serve God in the week. So this is what he's talking about. Now, where this text gets kind of strange is what happens in this middle section. So what he's talking about in Setting the Table, he's talking about a people who have gathered together to worship and to walk in obedience to the will of God. And they are happy, and they are growing, and they are blessed in this. And then he brings up two other people, two other kinds. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. So then two kinds of people, or we might say two classes, That he addresses. Now, don't let the son of a foreigner, what does that literally mean? It literally is a son of a foreigness, or it means uh, one of an unholy union, or in Jewish history, or that we understand from the Torah, that would be an individual who has married a pagan, and they've had a child that's now this Gentile pagan child. And he says, Don't let the son of the foreigner, the one who is the illegitimate in the covenant, don't let him say, well, I, I'm, I'm just a foreigner. I'm not a Jew. Therefore, I can't come and worship. He says that. And then he says, the Lord has separated me. I can't do it. And then he says, and don't let the eunuch say, I'm a dry tree. Now, that's a strange thing. Of course, a eunuch is one who has, through uh, either through natural birth in, in Israel's time, in the Old Testament, either the natural or through some accident or through some self-imposed way. It's a man who has emasculated himself. He's made it to where he cannot bear children. And he says, don't let him say I'm a dry tree. You kind of see the poetry there? I have no heritage. I can't have children. Of course, as we know, if you know the Old Testament, that's a pretty big deal to the heritage idea, right? The offspring idea, says, don't say that you're, don't say that. In other words, don't say that you can't gather here. Now, the question then we must ask is, why would they say that? That's actually, they would say it because of something that God says in his law in Deuteronomy 23. I don't have time to go through it, but in Deuteronomy 23, in the Torah, God's own law, he basically says that the son of the foreigner and the eunuch, and then he goes on with a list of other people, the Moabite, then this, this, he goes on, they can't enter into the assembly of the Lord. So the reason they're saying this is because they're saying God forbids it. I'm not allowed in because of my defect. So wait, how is God contradicting himself? Because if he said it in Deuteronomy 23 and they're just following that and now he says don't say that, you know, what's, what's going on? How does this work, work out? Well, first of all, let's notice what he's talking about here. So I already mentioned sort of the the idea of the son of the foreigners and the eunuch, and I think it's really important. We don't have the time to go back and, and exposit Deuteronomy and Leviticus and all of these. This is representative for the outcasts or those who, according to the Torah, were not allowed to participate in the fullness of the covenant. In other words, they were not fully welcome because of... God's ordained institution in his calling out of a particular people, the nation of Israel. They couldn't have full participation in the blessings of Israel, according to the law. So it's representative. Don't get stuck on the particular words or the things in Deuteronomy. You can look at that and work on that on your own. This is representative. You could also say the Moabite, uh, the Ammonite, uh, the Gentile, the American Okay, you could say anyone who is not a part of that Jewish covenant is who he's talking about, the outcast, the one who's not allowed in because of God's ordained purpose at the time. But notice about them, what's true about them. In verse 3, that says they have joined themselves to the Lord. So they've called on the name of the Lord while he is near. They've joined themselves to the Lord. So they're believers. It says in verse 6 that they not only have joined themselves to the Lord, but they love the Lord to serve Him so that sincere in their joining themselves. It wasn't for some political purpose, but this eunuch, this son of the foreigner, is like, I want to come in. This Yahweh is amazing. I love Him. It says in 4 and 6, the same thing that was said, chapter 4, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. You see that connection back to verse 2? keep my sabbaths they're gathered to worship they want together it's like picture them standing outside the temple gate saying i really want to go in there but i can't i'm not allowed they want to keep the sabbath they want to hold fast as covenant that's just and choose what pleases me that's another way of saying keeping your hand from evil the same thing in verse two so they they does that verse six the son of the foreigner to join themselves to the Lord, to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants. That's the word used for priests, by the way. To serve Him as priests. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast by covenant, same thing. They don't defile the Sabbath. So these are individuals who have joined themselves to the Lord. They believe in Yahweh as Redeemer. They love the Lord to serve Him. They've devoted themselves to worship of Yahweh. And they're pursuing the will of God. They're keeping His covenants. They're obeying the Word. They're walking in, in truth. And yet, they don't believe they're welcome into the Holy Convocation. Because, as I said, Leviticus uh, or Deuteronomy 23, they're, they're not. But God tells them not to say that any longer. They are welcome. Everyone is welcome. But, like, is this a contradiction? And the answer is no. Because remember how this is written in the prophetic perfect? In other words, this is written as if it's something yet to come for them, but it's written as if it's already happened. What has happened between Deuteronomy 23 and Isaiah 56? What has happened is Isaiah 53. What has happened is that there is one who has borne our transgressions for us. One who was... um, his stripes, have His wounds have healed us. What has happened is that one who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, one who was acquainted with grief, who was despised, who bore our griefs, who carried our sorrows, who was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And he was this all happened because He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. Even though we like sheep have gone astray, we've run away, we've not kept the Sabbaths, nor have we kept our hands from evil. But the Lord laid on him all of our iniquities. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shears, he was silent, he took it on himself. And he was cut off from the land of living. Why was he cut off? Because it was for my people. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And he was buried with the rich. And it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief. He was an offering for our sin. But he will see his seed because he will rise again. And his days are eternal. Isaiah 53 happens so that Isaiah 56 can happen. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the perfection of Jesus the Christ now says all are welcome into my house of worship. All may come in. None will be forbidden because all of that has been fulfilled and accomplished. That's why this isn't a contradiction. It's a fulfillment of God's sacrifice in our place so that we may keep His Sabbaths and keep our hands from doing evil. That's what's being said in this text. The promise of redemption through Christ in chapter 53 is the caused promise of acceptance into Christ's house in chapter 56. And we have to understand the word house there that he uses then in verse 7. Even them, the ones who were once far off but are brought near, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be a house called a house of prayer for all nations. House, house, house. Jesus uses this and he's referencing the temple, right? When he says, You've made my house of prayer a den of thieves. But we use the word house, and they did as well, in some different ways. The house can refer to the place in which you dwell, or it can refer to the people who dwell there. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When Joshua said that in Hebrew, he was not talking about his little hut. Right? He was talking about the people and his family, his family. So even in the Hebrew, the use of house, like in English, can refer to either the place or the people. So when Jesus was saying, my temple or my house, he was in that instance, I think, using this to refer to the physical place, which includes the people, but when Isaiah is using it here originally, he's using it in reference not to the place, but the people or the family. And so we could say it this way, I I will bring them to my holy mountain, Zion, to Christ, and make them, because I've brought them to my holy mountain, because I've brought them to Zion, the cornerstone, Christ himself, and make them joyful in my family my church of prayer, my assembly of prayer, my people of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices, their service, their worship will be accepted on my altar. They're fully accepted because my family, my church shall be called a family of prayer for all nations. That's how you could read this. The point of verses 3 through 7 then, first point is, and i uh, sorry, set the table. The Lord is coming. Christian, devote yourself to worship and to do His will. Second point, all are welcomed into the divine household to worship. Don't stay away from the household of worship. And now the dessert, the last little course here in verse 8, sort of a summation The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, Yet I will gather to him others beside those who are gathered to him. A little bit clunky in the English. It's because it's it's a little bit difficult to translate from the Hebrew. The word in the Greek, uh, Septuagint, uses the word synagogue, a word we're probably more familiar with. Three times in this text, synagogue means to gather. You remember Hebrews chapter 10 from a couple years ago. We preached through that. Hebrews 10 says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. That's the Greek word synagoguing. It was just the word for the formal assembling of God's people. And this is what he, how he says it here though. I will assemble, I will synagogue to Israel. Others besides those, yeah, yeah, the, sorry, verse 8. The Lord God who synagogues, who gathers, who assembles says, I will assemble, I will gather, I will synagogue to Israel others that are synagogued to him, that are gathered to him. Do you see the emphasis there? Gathered, 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 group, group, group. This is why you hear from your pastors over and over again from this pulpit that the New Testament and the Old Testament, that the Christian life is one lived as a we, as an us, as a group. I don't know when it happened, but sometime in our Western history, Maybe due to revivalism, I'm not sure. We took the idea of growth and worship and fellowship and Christianity and turned it into an intensely personal and private matter. And we turned it into something that's for me. And when people talk about, how are you doing? How are you growing? Are you growing in the Lord? And, the, and their response is, well, I read the Bible three times this week and prayed twice, so yes. Which is fine, but why is the answer always what I did personally and privately in my own little world where nobody else can be a part of it? But the Bible is never speaks of Christianity that way or Judaism. It's always in the gathered, the assembly, the people, the group, the partnership that comes along. It would be appropriate, though I am all about reading your Bible every day, do it. But it would be appropriate if someone asked you, how are you growing in the Lord? And you began to talk about what you've been learning in the sermons and we've been learning through some Bible studies with people and that's, that's it, that's part of it. That's actually the main part of it is the gathered, the togetherness, the we, the confess your faults to one another so that you can pray for one another, to be, to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Think of all the one another. That's the concept And the dessert here is, God says, I'm gathering a people. The old um, pastor of this church who years ago, who now is with the Lord, always said it this way, there are no maverick Christians. And that was the idea of what's being said here. Notice the quality of their welcome in verse 5. 5. Even to them, the outcast, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter anything about your physical, uh, cultural, ethnic, racial, none of that matters. Even to them, the one who has joined themselves to the Lord, the one who he's gathered, even to them, I will give in my house, my family, within my walls, a place and a name. There's a righteous inheritance. Though a Gentile and though a dry tree, you have a name. But notice the quality. Better than sons and daughters. A new family. Better than even family. And then notice the extent. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. The only everlasting name that can never be cut off is Yahweh. And so when we sing that hymn about our names being graven in his hands, that's true as it were. But that's because his name is engraven on our souls. Yahweh. They are sons and daughters of Yahweh, the Lord. A better name that can never be cut off. Notice the certainty of the welcome in verse 7. I'll bring to my holy mountain. That's union to God in Christ. I'll make them joyful in my house of prayer. Joyful communion with God through Christ. I will accept their sacrifices on my altar. Assured acceptance always with God through Christ. So he gives us union, communion, and eternal acceptance. Certainty. The Lord will do this. That phrase in verse 8. Adonai Yahweh makes a proclamation. It's unique. The Lord God who gathers says. The Lord God says. It's unique. It's actually only found here in this way in Isaiah, in this one text. And it means this. Adonai Yahweh proclaims it. Solemn proclamation. Sort of like a king who's like, let it be so. (laughs) It's over. No questions. I will do it. I will say it. I will gather, sovereign determination. I will will gather, shepherd. I will, great, graceful shepherding. I will gather to Israel. There's a covenant family idea. Israel will expand with the church, not be replaced by it. Others, besides those, a global expectation. And of course, Isaiah is foreshadowing what Jesus himself would say when he says, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. I must bring. And they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. The implications of this text, as I said, are actually many. And it's difficult to jump into an exposition in the middle of a book and then jump out of it. But I want to focus our closing few minutes on the chief aspect described in this text at verse 7. We are gathered then by God's sovereign determination because He is good and kind and gracious, because He has removed all boundaries in Christ, because He has made us fully accepted in the beloved family. This we gather, but why? He says, to be joyful in the house of prayer. We, the church, are awaiting people, and in our waiting, we are meant to be joyful in prayer. It's kind of hard sometimes, isn't it? I mean, joyful in church fellowship, eh, can have its good and bad days, right? But overall, it's enjoyable to be with people for sometimes for a short period of time. Uh, joyful in the Word, I, I can't get enough... Could listen to sermons and then read, and I I always find joy in the Word. That one's easy. Um, Joyful in the ordinances when we have communion, there's always joy there. I I just I enjoy that tremendously. But when it comes to prayer, usually the word joyful in prayer don't usually come into my mind together. I need to pray. I got to pray. I have to pray. Oh, I've not been praying very much. I need to do a better job. That's the general. and maybe I'm just reading my mail publicly and all you are looking at me like, well, that's crazy. But I assume that some of you feel the same way. I simply want to, as a pastor for this family, um, encourage you to be joyful in prayer with just four simple principles that I think derive from the tone and context of Isaiah 56. One, that might help you to take these things and try to help you encourage them in your private prayer life, which the Bible does speak of that, but also the corporate prayer life. One, don't consider prayer only a personal and private matter. Yes, Scripture would tell us, Matthew, Jesus tells us in Matthew, be careful about ostentatious, hypocritical praying to be seen of men. Enter your closet, he says that. But you know that most of Scripture, when it speaks of prayer, speaks of it in a corporate sense. People gathered to pray. And maybe I could say this in probably a little bit, not a really nice way. I don't know. I don't mean to be sacrilegious in any way. But um, playing cards with my family is more joyful than playing solitaire. There is a joy that comes when you're with people pouring out your hearts together before God. Even if they're speaking and you're just quietly, the prayers of others enlivens and encourages. Isaiah 56 principle, you have these outcasts who who would say, why wouldn't you gather in prayer? Why would they say that? When you've been kept from something, you realize what you're missing. And sometimes when you're not kept from something, we become dull to what we have. Ask the persecuted church who would love to gather in prayer. Ask them how their prayer lives are compared to the Western church who everything is sort of a take-it-or-leave-it sort of way of doing religion. Praying with God's people rather than avoiding it, I believe, will begin to produce joy in prayer. Second principle. Consider prayer, then, a grateful Upward worship more than inward self-fulfillment? Jesus taught prayer as foremost lifting our gaze heavenward rather than inward. You know how I, I you know when you're in here, I'm gonna once again read my bad laundry. Uh, you know how I often know that I'm not doing very well in my prayer life when I constantly begin with my prayers with, dear Lord, I'm sorry for not praying. You know, the problem with that is not, well, just pray more. The problem with that is, why am I beginning prayer with an inward gaze? When Jesus taught us, begin your prayers, our Father in heaven. Your name is holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. You provided for me. Begin it with a gaze on heaven. Gaze on God, not ourselves. Joy comes in the house of prayer because we recognize divine mercy and grace. The outcast has joy in prayer because he's fully aware he is weak, but God's salvation is strong. The whole tone of the text is the privilege of worship now offered to the outcast and experiencing prayer as a privilege of worship rather than a personal fulfillment. Checking our box, impressing myself, that will not lead toward joy. But when we get our gaze off of ourselves and simply speak to our gracious, good God, that begins to produce joy in prayer. Consider prayer a grateful upward worship more than inward self-fulfillment. Three, understand prayer itself, the act of prayer, the discipline of prayer, the engagement in prayer as means of growth more than answers to our wish list. Newton said, I am coming to a king, large petitions with me bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. And Martin Luther said that prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of God's generosity. And those are true, real things. We make lists, and we ought to make lists, and we ought to bring every petition before God. But sometimes, most of the time, when we pray, we begin to focus on that list as if the purpose of prayer is simply getting to able to make the answered prayer list. And I look and I'm like, well, I didn't have a lot of answered prayers over the last couple months. Prayer's been useless and not been helpful. It didn't do anything. But what if the chief goal in prayer was not necessarily to bring about the desired answers or to solve the problem of the list, but was to grow the individual heart in greater communion to God and with God? What if it's about our communion with Him, our speaking to Him, our enjoying that relationship with Him more than it is about what our list says or doesn't say? See, communion in Isaiah 56 is the point of prayer, not getting things done, getting stuff solved. Outcasts are given joy in prayer, not because they get stuff, but because they get to pray with God. In fact, maybe this little phrase could help us, though there's some Take it with a grain of salt. Prayer changes us more than it changes God. Now, good could quibble. Does a prayer even change God? Does God change? He's sovereign. Prayer changes us. I'll just put it that way. It's not about bending God to us. It's about us bending ourselves in grateful worship to him. It is a means of, of growth, the praying itself. And fourth, and lastly, believe that prayer is an expression and an overflow of of the gospel truth you have believed. Alec Motyer said, the essential element in the house was always enjoyment of the Lord's presence and fellowship and maintained in divine, holy presence. It was through the ministry of the altar, Isaiah 6, 7, and 8, that Isaiah found himself enjoying a speaking relationship with God and his experience was a microcosm of the whole. I like that phrase for prayer. It's simply a speaking relationship with God. That's what it is. I think we'll begin to enjoy a speaking relationship with God, prayer, when we have been brought near Him through the altar of Christ or when we recognize that and we live in that. Hebrews, for example, urges us to draw near the throne of grace, which often is understood to mean prayer because we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Gospel centrality and meditation produces joy in prayer. Praying people then are a people who love the Lord and they love the Lord because they're continually rejoicing in the blessings of the gospel of free grace. Want greater joy in prayer? Stop focusing on prayer. How long how short, how impressive, how accurate, and so on and so on. Immerse yourself in the truths of the gospel. Immerse yourselves in the truths of Jesus Christ and joy in the family of prayer follows. Rather than shame that you didn't pray much, thank Jesus that he's praying even now for you. Be more impressed with Christ's prayers in the garden than your prayers in your closet. You see, when the gospel is enlivened in our heart and our eyes, our hearts will more naturally rejoice in God's house of prayer. Consider prayer. Don't consider prayer only a personal and private matter. Consider prayer a grateful, heavenward, upward worship more than self-fulfillment understand prayer itself is the means of growth, not what you accomplish in it, and believe that prayer is an expression of the overflow of the gospel of grace.